You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This is the MIT Alumni Books podcast. I'm Joe McGonigal, Director of Alumni Education. Joining me from his home in Arizona is Harold Linder, a Course 12 graduate from the class of 1958. Earlier this year, Linder published Wild Places, The Adventures of an Exploration Geologist. It's a memoir that accounts for his 35-year career in earth science on seven continents. Here's an excerpt. Too often, exploration geologists fall in love with their projects and try to continue past the point of diminishing returns. Eventually, management or the alternatives of other projects force one to reset priorities. Even so, there are many examples of geologists returning to old prospects, either with other companies or on their own, and making major discoveries. Of course, there are far more examples of geologists returning to old projects and finding nothing new. In fact, an exploration geologist can rarely prove conclusively that no ore body is present, and he simply has to decide when the potential of discovery is greater elsewhere. There's always a tendency to spend more than is strictly warranted on a property, partly because of the cost just to acquire that property. Well, a more important reason is that if someone later discovers an ore body on a property a geologist had previously explored, there will be embarrassing questions. Most geologists leave a property with nagging thoughts that maybe there really was a deposit there, and they weren't smart enough or lucky enough to find it, and in the even worse feeling that someone else may come along and discover it. Well, Dr. Linder, thanks for joining me. Uh, what prompted you to publish this book now? Well, I'm retired now, and I think it's natural to look back over your career and try to put it into perspective. And I think most people would agree that I had an unusual career. I explored for metal deposits in remote and wild areas during the last half of the 20th century, and as you said, was fortunate to work on all seven continents. So much of the book uh, demonstrates what a DIY man you are, uh, do-it-yourselfer, from exploring in Canada early on, building your own camps, chopping your own firewood, um, cooking your own dinners, commuting hundreds of miles on skis in Antarctica, uh, getting yourself out of dangerous situations with bears. I'm reading the book, you realize what a DIY writer you are, too. You, you've chronicled your life in journal entries from, you know, right out of MIT in 1958 so meticulously and produced. The book also has just stunning images throughout to accompany these. Who taught you to write? Who taught you to take such great photos? Well, did, that, did you learn that at MIT? Uh, no, not at all. The writing... Uh... Uh, I always liked to keep a diary because I knew I was doing unusual things, but it was mostly for my own uh, purposes. Uh, photographs, so what you see are the remnants of thousands and thousands of poor photographs. And what kind of camera were you using? Oh, different kinds of cameras, uh, mostly fairly inexpensive ones, uh, because they took uh, quite a beating in the, the bush, as you could imagine. Your journal starts in, in 1958, some of your first um, jobs working in northern Quebec, in the wilds of northern Quebec and Ontario. Tell us how that landscape has changed over a half a century later. Well, the area I worked in uh, mostly was Evans Lake area. That was a greenstone belt about 200 miles north of the farthest north roads and, and settlements. 
since then, uh, mines have been discovered farther north and civilization has pushed its way north. There's a giant hydroelectric project in northern Quebec now, and they've built an access road for that. So there is more road access, but the bulk of the area is still uh, really uh, complete wilderness. Bush with uh, muskegs and lakes and swamps and rivers and uh, really no human beings in there. Some of your journal entries uh, make Henry David Thoreau look like a city kid. It's pretty dense wilderness you were checking through, and you've only excerpted parts of your of your journal, right? There are, there's, there's plenty more out there that you haven't published that uh, you say gets too technical at times. Well, that's true, but, but uh, the main problem was that uh, I kept extensive diaries, and I had to uh, really eliminate by far the bulk of them just to, to boil it down to things that readers would be interested in. I think I have probably on the order of a million words in my diaries. In 1961, you go to the University of Minnesota, where you join Ed Thiel, a University of Minnesota professor on an Antarctic research project to measure ice flows on the Ross Ice Shelf. Have you followed the progress of the Ross Ice Shelf since you've left? It's had chunks break off of it the size of Belgium. Only in general terms. I've since been on a, just a tourist cruise to the uh, panhandle of Antarctica, the peninsula, but I, I've not been back to the Ross Ice Shelf, and I've only uh, kept indirect touch with the work there. Things have changed dramatically in the last 50-some uh, years in Antarctica. So it wasn't just the quantity of editing uh, involved here. I'm sure there was plenty plenty of emotion involved in going back and reading a lot of this stuff and... and uh, was that challenging to, to wade through all of this stuff again? Talk about your wife's passing in 1981 and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of helicopter crashes, plane crashes in the bush. Yes, I, uh, I tried to keep most of the personal material out of it. Uh, this really is for the general reader, and, and certainly, there were, like any life, there were some very painful episodes. But the bulk of the material that I eliminated was really routine things that people would not be interested in. You know, how many line miles of electromagnetic survey I did that day and and that sort of mundane detail. How about the the field of earth science and geology? Exploration, you say, was still lower on the academic scale because this was considered even more practical and required working in industry. Is that still true today? Is uh, being an exploration geologist considered not as prestigious as academics? I think that would probably be the case at most uh, universities. The academic world uh, has its uh, foibles, as I'm sure you're aware. You save the best for last, perhaps. You do get to uh, 1985, the discovery of gold in the Castle Mountains south of Las Vegas, and go into great detail about the um, was a seven-year process of finally uh, getting to a mine. And what is the state of that mine in 2015? Uh, the mine uh, ceased operation in about 2001. Uh, there were two or three years of uh, leaching the pads to get the final gold out. A lot of reclamation went on. And the area is dormant now. It's since been acquired by another company. They've announced plans to go back and try to reopen the mine because the price of gold is much higher now. However, as you're probably aware, price of gold is relatively low now. Uh, the mining industry is in a, a classic bust. So I'm not aware that they're doing much work now. If uh, We certainly left a lot of gold in the Castle Mountains that wasn't economic 20 years ago. Whether they're able to continue mining there, because now it's mostly surrounded by a, a national preserve, uh, that, that remains open. 
finding the mine was was very exciting, but the, as I detail, that the problems just start after you've found a deposit. You have to permit it, and, and that involves a an awful lot of money and time and uh, paperwork. And uh, you were you were an independent consultant at the time. Yeah. That's correct. No, I was a full-time consultant for them. Yep. But the Castle Mountains had been uh, staked and restaked and, and claimed and reclaimed. What drew you to them that plenty of other geologists had, had ignored? It was an old mining district, the Hart Mining District. It was mined in about 1906, 07. Uh, it was a classic boom town, uh, some narrow vertical quartz veins had high-grade gold in them. The old-timers came in, uh, set up a, a tent city, mined for three or four years, and basically the mines petered out because the gold uh, didn't continue at depth. Other mining companies came along later and looked at it and thought it was only steep uh, vertical veins and therefore not open to bulk mining. I went in and looked for about three days and was very impressed with the amount of brecciation and the amount of silicification in the rocks. And to me, that suggested there was a good chance that there had been mineralization between the vertical veins, and that turned out to be the case. It was a large bulk deposit. And you wouldn't have those same hunches back in 1961? Oh, no. Experience is very important in economic geology, exploration geology, and the the more deposits you've seen, the more places you've worked, the uh, the better your judgment, generally. Uh, of course, in the seven years between uh, drilling hole number 150, you call it, is the lucky hole that was uh, led to the biggest uh, deposit. And 1992, the opening of the mine, you had the Sierra Club to contend with, you know, Category 1 tortoise habitat on uh, roads there, a healthy dose of local opposition to it. To be fair, the locals were mostly in favor. It was the outside environmental groups, so-called, that were the real opposition, the usual uh, cast of characters who basically are opposed to mining anywhere. Well, this was an area that had been very disturbed by old clay mining and gold mining. There was still opposition, and I detailed the problems we had permitted. I think you can see some of the... uh, the objections are raised were fairly silly, but the object, of course, was just to delay things and make it too expensive to continue. You close the book with a chapter on, on looking back. I wonder on, if you could read an excerpt. Okay, one second. Exploration geology remains a boom-and-bust career, dependent upon metal prices, and some geologists find they and their families cannot deal with the lack of job security. Because of this, the industry faces a shortage of younger scientists and only a few universities now offer an education in exploration geology. However, women are now welcomed and are numerous in the field. A few very large companies still perform sophisticated mineral exploration, but at the cost of increased bureaucracy and decreased flexibility. Most successful exploration is carried out by relatively small and flexible junior companies. This has the advantage that their geologists often share in the rewards, but with the downside that the geologists sometimes become too promotional. Tell me what else needs to be written on the subject of exploration geology. Will you write another book? I won't write a book, but uh, certainly others should. Every exploration geologist has his own stories to tell. Uh, We're an interesting bunch, by and large, with a lot of unusual experiences. I think the big thing, the public just has to understand the truism that if it didn't grow, it had to be mined. Civilization is simply impossible without metals, and metal deposits have to be found before they can be mined. 
But paradoxically, the growth of population has also increased people's appreciation of wilderness. And governments, therefore, continue to set aside in uh, large areas where you can't explore or, or mine. The bottom line is the balance between preserving wild areas and responsible access to natural resources is difficult, and it's one that society will continue to struggle with. Don't complain about mining what with your iPhone in your hand. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there, there are so many inconsistencies, and I couldn't understand the the opposition to permitting this mine, but once I realized it wasn't rational, it all began to make sense. Tell me how your MIT education is alive and well in this book. Well, I, I have a lengthy chapter on the MIT, what it was like in the 1950s, and I think it's a very different place today. As an example, my entering class of 1958 had 950 men and only 12 women, and the atmosphere of MIT was completely masculine. The Cold War influenced everything. Research, we had compulsory ROTC, and, of course, the military draft. I was a senior at MIT in October of 57 when the Russians launched Sputnik. Suddenly, the public was interested in science and engineering and the people who did it. I think Sputnik was a real turning point in American science. My MIT education taught me to concentrate on the facts and reality of a situation and to try and keep things in perspective. You mentioned space exploration. Do minerals out there interest you? Oh, they interest me, but uh, the talk of mining asteroids is ridiculous, frankly. Uh, we have enough trouble here on Earth and in the seafloor mining things, so it's going to be a long time before we mine any minerals uh, in space. As, just as a geologist, I enjoy reading about the discoveries on the various planets. It's quite interesting to see geology expanded. Tell me what else, what else are you reading right now? Oh, I read a wide range of nonfiction. I find reality far more interesting than fiction. I recently read uh, Max Tegmark, Our Mathematical Universe, My Quest for the Ultimate Nature of Reality. It's a very ambitious book. I've read Nicholas Wade, A Troublesome Inheritance, Genes, Race, and Human History. It's a brave and politically incorrect book. And I've just finished uh, Charles Murray, By the People, Rebuilding Liberty Without Permission. It's basically a libertarian manifesto for civil disobedience. Well, uh, Harold Winder's book, Wild Places, The Adventures of an Exploration Geologist, is now available online. Hal, thanks for joining me. Well, I, I appreciate that.